Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, December 2nd, 2018. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I remember it very clearly. It was a Thursday night, February 24th, 1994. I was in the final semester of uh, four years of going to seminary at Madison, uh, in Madison, New Jersey, at Drew Theological School. And Jody and I had been following the Lillehammer, uh, the 17th Olympic Winter Games in Lillehammer, Norway. And they were nearing the end. Now, snow wasn't quite on the ground. It snowed a lot in New Jersey. But on this particular night, there wasn't snow, but it was cold. It was a cold winter's evening. And, and so we were uh, kind of cuddled close together on the couch with blankets, uh, watching the Olympic Games. And our 45-pound Whippet dog, if you don't know what Whippets are, they're like greyhounds, uh, named Coco, was on our lap. She was 45 pounds. She thought she was like an 8-pound lap dog. Anyway, with just three nights of competitions to go, uh, we were riveted to our television screens, watching the final night of the ladies' figure skating competition. Oksana Bayul of the Ukraine was locked in a head-to-head battle with defending Olympic gold medalist Nancy Kerrigan. In addition to who was going to win the gold, the world was also drawn to American skater thur- turn thug Tanya Harding, who a year prior uh, had grabbed worldwide headlines when she attempted to have Kerrigan's legs broken after a skating session. Her bodyguard and ex-husband was unsuccessful and only managed to keep Kerrigan out of the 93 World Championships. But now, the Olympic Games had all the drama of a late-night soap opera. Anyway, I, I, I still remember that night. And so we were on the couch, and then Jody decided to go into the bathroom and to administer a home pregnancy test. Now, it was the last semester of seminary. We weren't necessarily trying to get pregnant, but we weren't not trying, if you know what I mean. And we thought, well, maybe this is the time when our family is going to start. And so Jody was torn between going back in and checking the little plastic strip, coming back out and watching the skaters, going back in and checking, is it one line or two, um, and rushing back to the couch. Well, we found out that we were pregnant, or she was pregnant, and our hearts soared. But we had to wait until the skating was over before we called both of our parents to let them know that we were expecting. Now, in case you uh, don't remember the results, Bayul got the gold, Kerrigan got the silver, and Harding finished a distant seven. But we were so excited that our first child was on the way. I was 26, Jody was 25. We had no clue what we were about to get into, I tell you that. Welcome to the first Sunday in Advent, uh, and a new sermon series entitled The Songs of Christmas. Advent is a word that means coming. And it's the four weeks of preparation uh, for the coming of Christmas in the Christian calendar. Now, I'm a huge Disney fan. Disney already started celebrating Christmas on November 9th. And if you've gone to the store, you know that after Black Friday, that was officially the Christmas shopping season. But the church knows we're not yet there at Christmas. In fact, this is the season of Advent, of preparation, of waiting of four weeks of getting ready, getting our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our lives ready for the coming of the Savior and the gift that that is for each of us. So this series, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke and what the Bible calls songs that are surrounding uh, the birth and the coming of the Savior. Now, don't be confused with old classics like O Little Town of Bethlehem, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, or Away in a Manger. It's not going to be those songs. 
nor is it going to be the modern classics like rocking around the Christmas tree or I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus or everyone's favorite. Sing along with me. Ready? Grandma got run over by a reindeer. <laughs> no, no. These songs from Luke are more like poems that are, that are either spoken or sung by people of faith from the heart. Now, throughout Scripture, the Hebrew people would sing a lot, whether they felt joy or sorrow, hope or fear. And so it is in this tradition that the songs of Luke come that we're going to be looking at together. Deeply embedded in these songs are passages of Scripture from other parts of the Bible. So those are the songs we're going to be looking at. And the singers will include John the Baptist, the heavenly host of angels, Simeon, as well as today, we get things started with the one who started it all, Mary. Well, I guess technically, God is the one who started it all by sending the angel Gabriel to Mary to let her know that she would be with child. This insignificant uh, town called Nazareth, where she lived. Nazareth lay in the shadows of the giant city of Sepphoris. It was the big city in Galilee. That's where you went to go to the theater, to go out to dinner, to do all your fabulous shopping, was Sepphoris. Uh, Nazareth, on the other hand, was a small village comparatively with maybe only one to 200 inhabitants. In fact, you'll see it just directly below the circled city there is Nazareth. Adam Hamilton, in his book, The Journey, describes Nazareth as, you ready? The low-income housing area of Sephoris. In fact, he says it's actually more like a trailer park than actual housing because there were lots of caves that people would live in the caves or very small dwellings in Nazareth. So we meet Mary as a young girl. We don't know how old she was precisely, but chances are she would have been between 12 and 14 years old. Uh, that's when the age when young women were engaged after they had had their first period and they were officially recognized as women. And 12 seems like really young for us today. Uh, and I don't recommend any 12-year-olds here to be getting married anytime soon. But in Jesus' day, that was the age that women started getting engaged. And so Mary was betrothed. She was promised in marriage to Joseph, a uh, carpenter and son of a carpenter. And the marriage would have been arranged by Mary's father with Joseph's parents. But, and this is what I love, Mary or the women still had to give their blessing upon this parental arranged marriage. And if she said yes, then they would officially be betrothed. And her fiancé, Joseph, then had to go back to his home house and build an extension where they would live together. And the extension could take up to one year. Uh, during this time, Mary would stay at home with her parents, and she'd be waiting for Joseph to come. She wouldn't exactly know when it was going to be, but she had to be ready for when he came, and then their week-long marriage celebration would take place. But during the year, for all intents and purposes, Mary and Joseph were already married. They just weren't able to live together just yet. So here we have Mary, a young girl in an insignificant town in an unimportant province in the great Roman Empire. Nothing about her circumstances would have led anyone to expect that she was about to have a key role in God's plans for the whole world. Enter the angel Gabriel. He comes to her. He greets her with the words, favored one. He tells her that the Lord is with her. The word angel, by the way, is a transliteration of the Greek word uh, for messenger, angelos. 
Gabriel drops the bombshell that Mary is going to be having a baby. But not kind of, oh, isn't that cute that a young couple is going to have their first child kind of a baby? No, this is a, you are not going to believe this baby kind of baby, sorry. Luke 1.32 says this. Gabriel is saying to Mary, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I mean, that's, can you imagine getting that news about your child? I mean, everybody thinks their kid's the best, but when you get this from an angel, right, that's like next level stuff. And Mary mentions to Gabriel, there just might be one slight problem. Um, Joseph and I haven't actually started sleeping together yet. I mean, she was no dummy, probably got an A in biology class, right? But Gabriel says, not a problem. God's got it all worked out. It's going to be a Holy Spirit kind of thing. For nothing is impossible with God, says Gabriel. And Mary says this. Here I am, servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. So in this remarkable moment of faithfulness, Mary agrees to allow the Holy Spirit to conceive a child within her. What's happening in her body and her life is going to become a blessing for the world. It's amazing what can take place when the willingness of an ordinary girl is open to being used by God. Which brings us to our reading for today. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, or if you want to grab the Red Pew Bible that's in the seat in front of you, or take out your smartphones and open your Bible app if you don't have a Bible app, go to the um, iTunes, uh, uh, iTunes store or uh, Google Play and just enter the word version, Y-O-U version, B-R-S-I-O-N. And it's a free Bible app that has hundreds of different translations. You can even uh, select the NRSV, which is what we read on Sunday morning. So Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country. For she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So Elizabeth is Mary's older cousin. Uh, as we say in Hawaii, though, she was more like an auntie to her uh, because of the age difference. Uh, this was a big trip for Mary to go from Nazareth all the way down into the hill country of Judea. She couldn't just get on a want-to-get-away $39 flight from Southwest Airlines. There were no airports in Nazareth, remember? That's like the trailer park of Galilee. Uh, and so it was an arduous 90-mile journey that would have taken a a woman of Mary's age probably 10 days to travel. So the much older Elizabeth is also pregnant at this time. She had been barren, but if you want to read her story, that's the earlier part of of Luke chapter 1, an amazing story. But she also is with child. The hormones are raging between these two women when they gather together in that house that day. Luke tells us that Elizabeth's baby starts doing somersaults in her womb when Mary arrives, and she calls her younger cousin, blessed are you among women, and you are the mother of my Lord. So really, Elizabeth is the first person to ever acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, ever. Into this setting, we get Mary's song, the focus of today's message. Verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This song is also known as the Magnificat for the Latin word to magnify, which is the first word in, uh, in, in the Latin of this scripture passage. So, so Mary's life, her whole heart is magnifying God 
for all to see. Mary's song borrows heavily from Hannah's song, which was found in 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. Hannah was the mother of the great prophet Samuel, and she also, too, was barren for quite a long time. And then when she finally conceived and gave birth, her heart was so full of joy that she broke out in song testifying to God's goodness and glory and greatness. And what's interesting is, scholars tell us that every young Jewish girl in Mary's day would have memorized Hannah's song. It was that important. They would have all known it by heart. It was a part of their uh, uh, cultural ethos, if you will. Kind of like how we all tend to know the, the words to Amazing Grace, right? We, I mean, maybe not all the verses, but at least we know the first verse, and we can sing along. That's what it was like for young girls to know Hannah's song. So Mary comes in, and then she adds to this. Mary probably had Hannah's song on her heart as she sang her own song there in her older cousin's living room. What's interesting, though, is how radically dangerous this song is. It's not a, I'm so happy I'm pregnant kind of song. It's not, oh, I'm just glowing because I'm pregnant song. No. Jewish law stated that if a betrothed woman was found to be with child by someone other than her fiancé, the crime could be punishable by death. So technically, she's got that possibility facing her. But Mary's song is no bubblegum pop kind of ditty. In fact, in the 90s in Guatemala... It was forbidden by the regime in power to even read these verses of Mary's song aloud in public. I mean, it was considered that dangerous and that revolutionary. The song can be broken down into two halves. The first half, Mary focuses on what God has done for her, and the second half on what God has done for everyone. Verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord, she says. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is God's name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, we could spend all day talking about this, but I just want to lift up two words uh, from this first section. And the first is that Mary refers to herself as being lowly. In Greek, the word can be translated powerless or least significant. It literally means as close to the ground as you can get. This is a recurring theme throughout the Bible, that God chooses the least likely, the, those often that others overlook, to be God's agents of change. But it's not a statement of low self-esteem. It's not like, oh, I'm nothing, I'm not really worth anything. No, it's, a, it's an understanding of the reality of where the culture is and how things work, and that, that God actually takes the least likely people, the people with the least amount of power and prestige, to do the most amazing things. The second word from this passage I'd like to highlight is mercy. In Greek, this can also mean concern, love, and compassion. In Hebrew, the word hesed involves God's God's unwavering commitment to love, kindness, pity, and compassion. The Bible often speaks of God's compassion and mercy. For everyone, yes, but especially for those who are marginalized, oppressed, laughed at, pushed down, spit upon, made to feel small, those that have no uh, authority or, or sense of power in the community, God extends his mercy especially to them. And so Mary offers herself as a sign of God's salvation and greatness and how God's attitude for the lowly is a blessing. 
Pastor Adam Hamilton, in a sermon a few years ago at his Church of the Resurrection in Kansas, mentions that we're never more like God than we're, when we're showing this same mercy to others. That we are most godlike when we extend mercy, compassion, and grace to others. Now, if you know anything about me, you know at least three things. One, I love cookies. This past Thursday was my birthday, and you know the Starbucks, if you have the Starbucks app, they send you a note and you get a free item. And I don't drink coffee, uh, but I go to Starbucks twice a week for scripture journaling, and I love their pastries. So I went in and got, that's actually the cookie I got from Starbucks on Thursday. Sugar cookie with extra frosting and sprinkles. It was the bomb. I highly recommend it. You also know that I love Disney. I ate my cookie Friday when I went to Disneyland uh, to celebrate my birthday. Here's a picture that I took uh, when I thought it was going to be my last trip a few months ago, and then many of you surprised me by helping pay for a renewal of my past. Thank you, thank you very much. My next uh, trip is in two weeks, so if you need anything, let me know. I'll hook you up. Uh, But three, I am also a sports fan, like a huge sports fan. I love playing and watching just about everything, but especially I love watching football. And I watch it from all levels, professional, college, high school, even youth football. But as big of a fan as I am, there are few regions in the country that love football as much as the people in the great state of Texas love football. Any, any people from Texas here? Yeah, football is like, you, you don't even have an idea of what football is like. But I'm going to show you this video clip. It's a powerful story. It happened about 10 years ago. You may have missed it, but you need to know about it. It's amazing. You know, Mary spoke about God's mercy to her and to others. This is a living example of what it means when we extend that same mercy, compassion, and grace to others. Let's watch. A Friday afternoon comes to a close, and in the small town of Crum, Texas, that means it's time for football. However, tonight's game is different. Tonight, home team fans will cheer on the opposing team to tackle, sack, and score against their own sons, friends, and brothers. Tonight, they cheer for a school called Gainesville State. Located just 30 miles up the highway, yet seemingly a world away, Gainesville State School is a maximum security facility for youth offenders. To be a student here is to be a convicted criminal. What kind of things have the boys done to be at the Gainesville State School? Anything from, you know, um, burglary or, you know, aggravated robbery, assault. All of them are felony crimes. We don't have youth with misdemeanors. Okay, so once they're here, it's serious business. Yes. Here, students that serve the majority of their sentence plus meet strict academic and behavioral standards earn a shot at the school's slightest brush with the outside world. The chance to play football. But as every game is an away game in a competitive and sometimes hostile environment, players find defeated seasons reflections of defeated lives. My peers around me that play on the same team, I have heard them being called racial slurs and all kinds of other stuff by an opposing players. They're trying to prove a point that we already lost our chance to play high school football by the decisions we made. You gonna take hand the ball to fullback? He's hitting. Right now, what kind of support do these kids get from their homes? Not much. A lot of them are, you know, maybe one parent, families, maybe no parents. They weren't given the the chance of having a, you know, a mom and dad at home, and. Uh, That's a sad, sad thing. Heading into their final 2008 game against Grapevine Faith Christian School, Gainesville State players look to end a demoralizing season. 
However, Grapevine Faith coach Chris Hogan right there, Donington. looked to end something entirely different, a pattern of failure. When I saw them on the schedule, we felt like here are 16, 17, 18-year-old kids, and they're somebody's little boy, and they're locked up in prison. So the idea was to just give them hope, given the natural <laughs> hopelessness that is normal in prison life. When the boys arrived, we had fixed them a meal, shared the gospel with them that day before the game, and we have a big banner for them. They run through the banner. We have people who made spirit signs, and then half of our crowd literally goes across, and we have a roster with their name and, and cheer for them. So they got the same experience that most every other kid in Texas gets on a Friday night. I was surprised. I was like, they were calling us by our names and everything, and at first we thought that they had another player with the same name, so... I didn't know what to think. It was just, I don't know, it was just something I felt like God was just touching touching upon all of us and letting us know that there's people out there that care about you. They could care less what we was in here for or the crime we committed, and they want to love us like their own kids. In the two years since Coach Hogan and Grapevine Faith's display of encouragement, others have stepped up on their own will to continue the effort. Tonight, it's Crumb Volunteer Youth Leader, Brenda Kirk. When I initially started, uh, my plans were to invite the other churches in town to just sit with our church on the visitor side and cheer for the boys. And it just got a whole lot bigger than that really quick. <laughs> Man, I tell you what, those kids... They don't get a lot of support. Uh, they would really appreciate yeah. it. I know, what, what time I is know. that going to be? It's a 7.30 game. When I heard about the effort going on, I talked to my boss. And 96.3 KSCS decided that we would just volunteer to help promote the event. We really just want to show these guys the love of Christ. And we want to show these boys that they matter. As word got out, a community responded. Local businesses donated pregame meals. Crumb High School provided their visiting team both a band and a cheer squad and a spirit line formed that charged up fans and players alike. That's why I'm a teacher and a coach, is, is to do things like this. Every day we, we, we do it for our kids right here in Crumb, but to, to go outside of Crumb and to do it for others is very special. The Gainesville kid recognized we might be wearing helmets, but there's something bigger happening. And I think what they found out was people believe in them. The kids would tell me they were calling my name. Number and they were cheering for me. I don't even know those people, and that offers an encouragement to them that they have not seen probably in a lifetime. Isn't that a great story? We are never more like God than when we are offering mercy and grace and compassion to others. The second half of Mary's song looks at God's graciousness towards all. Verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. These are themes that you can find all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Mercy to the poor, judgment to the wealthy, honor to the humble, confusion to the proud. There are also themes you find all throughout Jesus' life and ministry. This song testifies to the fact that God is actively engaged with those who show mercy to others and also actively working against those who don't. 
scattering the proud, those who think more of themselves than they ought, those who are focused only on themselves giving ahead and to the oblivion of others, who often get caught up in the schemes of their own plans and forget about what's important in life. Bringing down the powerful from their thrones, that's also quite a statement. In fact, you would say that is a very revolutionary statement. King Herod was the ruler in Israel at that time. He was a man that was so caught up in himself and had such a big ego ego, that he gave himself a nickname. Like, you don't give yourself a nickname. Others give you the nickname, right? That's how it sticks. No, he wanted to be called the Great, as in Herod the Great, or you could just call me Mr. Great for short, I guess, right? He was also a violent, evil, and paranoid man. He had his favorite wife killed. He had more than one wife. He killed three of his own sons out of paranoia and fear that they were plotting to overtake him as a leader. In fact, one of his sons, he drowned in the royal swimming pool. And uh, so it's revolutionary to sing songs about bringing down the mighty from their thrones when this man is the one sitting on the throne. That's what Mary did. I mean, what what a bold song. What bravery and courage for her to sing this or to say this. In marriage song, we also discover that God's kingdom works to fill the hungry with good things and send the rich away empty. One of the things that the Old Testament pointed to was when the Messiah comes, that all will have enough to eat. Because, as you know, there's been this discrepancy amongst the haves and the have-nots. So they look forward to the uh, filling everyone with food part. But the second part of this, the uh, sending the rich away empty, that may cause sort of the hair on the back of our necks to stand up. I mean, we don't, all of us, we don't feel rich per se, but compared to the rest of the world, just living in the United States, we are very wealthy. We just finished a series on a heart for the poor, and I'm so excited about the excitement that was generated over the, the, the three weeks of that series. And not only did last week we get all 20 Compassion Children sponsored, but 12 people signed up to join our three different feeding ministry programs that we do once a month at different locations here in the Antelope Valley. I mean, our generosity is growing and growing, friends, and I want to congratulate you and encourage you to keep it up. This is one of the reasons why we have these uh, alternative gift opportunity here at Palmdale Church. This is the third year we're offering this because we know that we are, compared to so many others, wealthy and that God does care for the hungry, the poor, the neglected, the least among us. And this is a simple way that each of us can, can bless others and, and give beyond the people that we normally give to. So you have the opportunity through the alternative gifts to provide clean water, medical supplies, educational opportunities for girls in India and, and boys for anti-malaria bed nets to prevent uh, the disease and the spread of malaria, for baby chickens for a family to to raise on their own, and also uh, care for those who are in the most need here in the Antelope Valley. And so we hope that uh, each one of us will consider making at least one alternative gift this Christmas year. Just fill this out, drop it in, or call the church office, and we'll get you everything you need. We want to share what God has blessed us with. Even the leader of the Roman Catholic Church, Pope Francis, has made one of his main focuses to be the call of all Christians to reach out to the poor and the marginalized around us. But this is where it all starts, friends, at the beginning of Advent, these four weeks of preparation for Christmas. We're reminded with Mary's song that God chooses his entrance among the small ones, the least of these, those who in the eyes of many don't count, but we know otherwise. 
This Sunday reminds us of the necessity of obeying like Mary, of lending our bodies to God so that the word may enter into our lives and into our communities as well. You see, when we invite the Savior to be a part of our Christmas, a part of our celebration, a part of our Advent and our own lives, we acknowledge our desperate need for strength beyond what we can muster, for deliverance beyond our control, for grace and peace when we're not able to generate it ourselves. May we not look to what we can buy or manufacture or dress up with tinsel and bows. Instead, may our focus this Christmas be on Jesus and what he wants to accomplish in and through our lives and this community and the world. So welcome to Advent, friends. It's going to be a fabulous four weeks. Thank you.